Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Media, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Adrian Sebro, Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of Scratchin' and Survivin', Hustle, Economics, and the Black Sitcoms of Tandem Productions. The book was published by Rutgers University Press in 2023. Welcome, Adrian. How are you doing today? Hey, Pete. I'm doing great. Glad to have you here. Glad to be in conversation with you. Glad the book's out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a it's a weird moment to see this uh, book in physical form after all the work has been done towards it. I'm sure you understand. And um, yeah, I'm just happy that folks are going to have it in hand and be in conversation with it. And I'm just happy to you know have it out there and want to see what comes up from it. So thank you for offering the venue to talk about it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited about this project and I think it'll give us a lot to talk about. And I think it'll inspire a lot of fascinating work coming uh, out of it. Um, So to get started, I'm just hoping you could tell um, our audience a bit about your background and your training. Yeah. So um, background wise, you know, I'm born and raised in Southern California, San Diego specifically. I um, went undergrad at UCLA. Um, Through there, I uh, said my bachelor's degree in um, women's studies with a minor in um, film and television studies. Uh, From then on, I went to uh, Columbia's Institute of Research in African-American Studies and got my master's in African-American Studies there. And um, actually went back to UCLA for the PhD in um, cinema media studies. So three different degrees, but I've always um, worked to bridge those things together. And as a a MLMA's undergraduate fellow and like now a Mellon fellow still, uh, I've always been kind of encouraged to, you know, always think about interdisciplinary, think about things interdisciplinarily. So I've always been interested in um, media identity and how, specifically in this case, television um, has taught us a lot about ourselves and, um, you know, kind of racial formations. So for me, looking at gender as a Black man, you know, how has television as a primary form of pedagogy, um, what I've learned from it about myself, my community, my culture. So with that, um, I kind of dived into this work as a master's student, realizing that I watched a lot of these shows with my father growing up and largely didn't know what they were talking about and like, but the language, but for some reason it resonated so much with the community. It was so popular. My father loved it. My father is an immigrant from Trinidad and Tobago. So for him, it was like, he watched these shows to learn how to be black American really. And um, for me, I was like, all right, what does that actually mean? Um, So I did a deep investigation into these shows and then realized, you know, oh, these are shows like with a huge following especially of black culture but they weren't created by black people right so that for me i wanted to interrogate what that meant and what were the stakes of those black individuals involved with the making of these shows and that kind of culminated to the book we see here now yeah i think that's fascinating i remember once a professor in grad school said to me all research is me search right yeah Um, yeah, yeah. and it's it's fascinating to see in that opening um section the introduction uh where you're talking about you know watching these with your dad and what they meant Mm -hmm. to him and how that meant something to you and now you know the kind of way your own research is kind of putting it into a historical context and appreciating the work here i think is um something that really resonated with me and i appreciate it about your project um can you talk a bit about um 
this project you, you mentioned was kind of part of your graduate work and, and now yeah. is, is, is a monograph, right? You've gone from proving that you are PhD material to being <laughs> a published author. Uh, can yeah. you talk about that, that process, especially for some of our listeners who may be early career scholars? What's that process of going back to the dissertation and, uh, and making it something you want to show the world? Yeah, that process is a um, a lot tougher than one, one stinks. You, know, you can't simply take your disc and then send your disc to a publisher and it publishes the book. Um, it really takes a lot. Like, you know, you have to relook at your disc because once you finish your disc, you start your career, you, you realize you are an entirely different person. You write different automatically. There is so much more books you wish you had time to read. The disc is literally a portion of getting your degree, right? It's, it is not going to be your best work. There are things you're doing under certain pressure and timelines, and you're also trying to prove so much more with your disc. So your disc is really... You have to prove the readers in the field. You have to prove who you're in conversation with. It's so much of proving that you did the work. And then your original research is there, but oftentimes it can kind of get lost in proving everyone else and how yours is different. And your your own voice gets kind of uh, muffled in a lot of ways in the dis. And I would say the different, the biggest difference in transitioning from dissertation to book was um, I look back at myself and I realize like I'm I'm like reading this and like it's so much quotes and branching off of what other folks are saying in arguments and, and finding my way into them rather than developing my own arguments, right? And I, like the, the hardest thing too, I think with a disc or a book is um, having a through line argument that exists throughout the entirety of, the, of a book or, or any type of uh, longer piece. It's very tough to do. So for myself, I went back to the disc and um, all of the obviously you have to get rid of like all of the good all the deep literature reviews and all that stuff because also when it comes to publishers they want to know what's marketable they want to know how they can pitch this book to folks who may not be in your field how can it be communicated to folks otherwise and like honestly no one other than your you know phd advisors and stuff and really just probably your main advisor is going to read fully your dissertation and like the the proof that you did all the other work and proof that you're in conversation of other folks in the field so getting rid of a lot of that stuff you know chopping that off was tough you know um realizing that some parts of your disc are better to be like solo articles than in this book right like it's like you realize Every, all work you do, nothing's ever been thrown away completely, but not everything is meant for this particular monograph. Um, so streamlining what the argument is as well. For me, it was hustle economics and that existing throughout. I think in the in the disc, it was like the theme, the core, it was three core themes, trying to make organization around hustle economics, kind of gender politics and creative dissent. But what I realized is that hustle economics uh, is performed in all of those things. Like I mentioned black women so much in the film and their stake in these shows, they hustled as well too. They performed hustle economics. So, okay, I don't have to make that kind of this larger theme of because hustle economics exists through that. Creative dissent is in and of itself a hustle and how they have to hustle to make more money or how they then, you know, um, promoting black culture in their own way is a hustle. So really finding ways to kind of minimize, you know, and, and make make clear your argument. And it's largely about cutting away the fluff, um, which is a task that you, you have to really sit down and do weeks to do that. Um, you know, I did that kind of uh, book, book proposal and book accelerator uh, program, which I, I would suggest everyone do that. Um, that helped me a lot to cut away a lot of things that I thought like had to be there. And it made me realize that, um, I'm reading this, but I don't know who wrote it because there's so much of me wasn't in the book. Cause again, I'm like, 
I didn't think you, as a diss, right? A diss, you don't really feel like your your own word, words or your own perspective is enough or worthy because you know you're just focusing on quoting all the folks who 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 write around what you do. So when it comes to the book, it really is about putting your own voice, um, your own stamp on it. And, and my thing is too, it's like if this is the only book I ever wrote, I want it to be clear that it came from my voice, and I want my perspective to be shown in this. And um, it's a tough thing to do though to get over or to like value yourself enough i think and like value that you have a stake and i think that as a grad student we're reading these books you're like how can i there's no way i could ever write a book right um if you wrote a diss you know of course the different processes but if you wrote a diss you, you can write a book but it does take that time to realize that they are different things and that you have to be willing to cut away post away and also i had you know colleagues in different fields i would send them the whole diss or parts of it and really as an outside reader, what do you think about this? And like, so I think for me, it was like, if someone outside of my field could read this, um, the book is better because of that. So I think, yeah, rely on, lean on folks who can like give you honest feedback that, you know, um, wouldn't mean any type of particular bias because what you want your book to do is be, is be uh, well-read. And um, if you can write the folks who aren't in your specialization and they can understand it, I think that just makes for a better um, document. So those are just some of the ways that uh, a disc to manuscript, um, you learn those tools throughout the process. Yeah, I remember in writing my disc, the the luxury of like, I'm going to make this a 50-page chapter, a 60-page exactly. chapter. <laughs> and then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, okay, if you want this to be published, if you want yeah. this to be taught – it needs to be like a tight 10, 12,000 words, right? And yeah. then all of a sudden you're killing those darlings, but you're also yeah. not, you know, you don't have to prove you know it as much as you did then, Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and with those long chapters, if the chapter is going to remain long, because technically my, looking at it, like my, I think my good time chapter is probably my longest one. And largely because, you know, Sanford and Son, so much is written about, I was like finding, all right, well, what can I write differently? Same with Good Times. Uh, Jefferson's was a chapter that like nothing really was written about, you know, very few things. So like I was like, all right, open field, but also kind of scary because it's like, all right, am I going to say what, what is what I'm going to say going to be enough, you know, to be that first person to write about this in a scholarly way, right? Um, some books have written about it in kind of shorter essay forms, but this is like a longer book chapter. So I think my, my Good Times chapter is probably around 40 plus, maybe 50 pages, but I realized that if you're gonna have a long chapter, you have to break it up better too. Organize it in a way that doesn't feel as long, you know, have these kind of clean marks of difference. But yeah, in the, in the disc, you can go get away with a 70 page chapter or something, because again, you're not trying to sell it or market it to folks who are going to uh, read it and consume it and like, you know, digest it in classes and stuff. So yeah, all these things are different too. Uh, when it comes to the book, it's like, all right, um, it's a business all about marketing. It's all about, can we sell this? Who are we pitching it to? Um, if an audience outside of academia is reading that, they're not going to read 60 page chapters, you know? So how can you bring about, and I guess, I know you understand that too, is like someone writing on Disney, you know, can an average Disney consumer read this or do we, they have to be in the know of history of media, media studies and stuff, right? And I think that for me, I wanted my book to be read for folks outside of just academia, folks who are interested in just, Black popular culture, TV history, you know, fun facts around stuff like that, right? And so although the academic voice is there, it's very re readable in the fact that, you know, um, it can be discussed in trade. It can be discussed in, like, if you know about, about history of, like, you know, these popular Black folks y'all probably learned about. Here's some more deeper history, right? So that's important, and that changes uh, from a diss to when you're kind of trying to make a marketable book. 
Yeah, I, I think we've outed ourselves as, as knowing each other previously to this podcast. So uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about, you know, um, just even the premise of this book. Yeah. I was kind of breaking a sweat methodologically, right? Because you and I both work on production culture. We both work on comedy studies. We know yeah. that comedy is not archived in the way that other genres are. Right. We know that television isn't archived in the way that other media are. We know that Black creativity, especially in the media industries, is not archived in the way that their white counterparts are. So Correct. my question in a long, drawn-out way is kind of like, when you decide, like, okay, I'm going to take on tandem, I'm going to offer this kind of, you know, revisionist take on tandem, how do you navigate that methodologically, right? And can you talk to it? I mean, in some ways, you were hustling as a scholar, thinking about what can you yeah. piece together to recuperate these histories that have, in some ways, been taken over by other versions that have been written, especially those by those white executives. And then on the other mm -hmm. hand, um, you know, kind of finding the sources, finding the material, finding the people. So I'd love to hear a bit about your actual research process and, and the yeah. methods you brought together in, in doing so. Yeah, I knew it would be a challenge taking on this specific uh, company because, yeah, it is a, you know, I think my book is an, another thing like, you know, you have to know with it when it comes to this, but really with the book is like, whose books are you in conversation with? When you do a book proposal, you have to write like, you know, three to five books that like, you are in discussion with, right? And so for myself, you know, my book is 1000% in most discussion with, um, 1000% in most discussion with Christine Acom's, you know, uh, Revolution Televised. It That was the first book that made me even realize that, you know, 70s TV can be taken in a scholarly discussion. So for myself, I was like, and I've read that book through and through multiple times. I, I was like, oh, Sanford Sound has been my favorite show forever. I didn't, I had no idea it was written about in this way. So I was like, okay, but how can I be different, right? That, that's the hard thing, right? You have to like stake your claims and make yourself different. So she does a study of late 60s to early, uh, early mid 70s, Black TV as a whole, like no network specifications, no production specifications. Like, what does Black TV look like in this in these moments? Which is amazing. So, but my thing was not only that, but also one particular production company. That is my focus. I, my focus is Tandem Productions, so 1972, 1975, because their first Black show was 1972, Sanford and Son, and 75 is when Bud Yorkin and Norman Lear uh, disbanded as, as as partners. So, like, to me, that's the end of Tandem. Not the name, but the partnership that I created. So, kind of these three years is how I focus most of this book. And you think it's a small sample, but there's a lot happened in that three years. So, for me... Um, Whenever I, I knew it would be difficult because whenever I mentioned tandem to folks, um, Norman Lee is always, oh, normally, you know, that's the first person talked about, right? And I think that's part of the problem I have in writing this was like, I don't want him to be the first person talked about when I mentioned, you know, um, tandem. But obviously, the name in and of itself, you know, his cachet around dad, you know, all in the family, all these other shows, right? So, for me, it was like, okay, how can I change how folks view tandem or just like broaden the idea of what tandem is, you know, not taking anything away from what Lear has done, but talk more so about the nuances of the shows, the, the people that got popular from these shows, uh, what they said about culture, how TV changed, right? He wasn't the person on screen. He wasn't the one who was literally the representation of, of, of a new culture that hadn't been announced on television. So the process for me was, uh, again, there were not a lot of things, you know, um, written 
or a lot of things archived about these individuals because a lot of them come from, you know, Chitlin circuit. They don't know how to read scripts. They don't know how to write scripts, mostly uneducated, you know, mostly didn't have managers, lawyers, all these things that are like boilerplate now. That wasn't the case then. You know, these folks are coming from scrappy beginnings of like, you know, um, getting paid $20 a night for a comedy set. So for me, I was like, okay, let's build a world around this, right? So what I did was um, in grad school, and it was a lofty task. I had a um, a connection with the producer I knew who produced um, films, like I'll just say he produced a film like Revenge of the Nerds. It's very random. We actually kind of like, uh, have a business connection together. And I randomly emailed him because I know this, this Hollywood folks know one another, right? So I'm like, hey, would you happen to know anyone who worked with or knew Blood Yorker or Norman Lear? Yeah, random email. Uh, the very next email, I get like a kind of like a, uh, you didn't get this for me type of email. And it was a lot of um, information from from folks in their like in their offices. So I emailed, I did cold emails saying, hey, my name is Agency Bro. And I realized you have to, when it comes to especially working folks in media, you have to uh, sometimes stroke some egos. You got to like, you know, let folks know like I'm interested in your work, but you know, thank them for what they've done for sure and say, hey, I, I'm thinking about writing this book. And then this time I kind of didn't know how I wanted to take it just yet. So I wanted to say, oh, I want to see some old scripts about your black shows. Um, do you have any scripts? Do you have any like fan mail, anything, right? Because at this point, I didn't, don't know what I'm looking for still. And I got lucky because I was told that there was a, this, I went to school in UCLA. So, you know, it's local to Hollywood. That definitely helps to your location and where you're at. Um, I was told there was a, Normally you had an archive company called Act Three Productions where he like kind of stored a lot of his old things from the 70s and all his history of TV. And I was told that there were some documents that were going to be sent off to Sony's archive, but um, Act Three had them still. They'll be sent in two weeks. If you can make your way down here a couple of days and check them out, whatever's in there, cool. So I got, it was the timing and, and I, I, there are these moments I say, like, I never thought myself to I never thought I'd go through archives. I never thought of myself as archivists. I never thought of myself as someone who would do these things. But now, piecing together what you find in the archive can create such a, such amazing things, really. And I, I can't imagine what this book would be without that. So I was able to go in this room. I think I'm going to have like five, 10 boxes. It was over 50. And so, but I had like four or five days to go through this stuff, nine to five. And I even missed a class one day. I told my professor, look, this is part of my proposal. So like, I can't come to class for this. And they understood. But I literally went through the space that was like no one had seen before. And I was just like, and, and you know, when it gets to these like more kind of lockdown archives, it's even harder to access them. And like, it takes more time. So I was able to come in at a great time. And what I found was, thankfully, it was categorized in a pretty good way. Um, things about Sanford's Son, Good Times, Jefferson's, and it was not just like scripts and like rewrites of scripts. So that's one thing. I, oh, I can actually look at rewrites. Rewrites of scripts is, tells an important story. Like, why was it rewritten? And also watching a show along with reading the script, what may be improv right? And like you were talking about Black comedians, improv is a huge part of that, that culture. So, okay, that's the one, that's one little take. But also I'm like, oh, I'm getting fan mail. So I'm able to really talk about how do like folks are writing in and saying, hey, Red Fox, can you send me a picture with your signature on it? Or I love the show or hate mail. Like, oh, I hate the character uh, Red Fox. He's just so dirty and, you know, he's um, his dirty comedy, et cetera. Right. That's another narrative. Right. How folks are responding to these characters in real time, because, again, this is a historical project in a lot of ways. So. I'm able to get these fan mails of how folks respond in real time because Nielsen did a more quantitative stuff rather than qualitative then. And I'm also getting, you know, 
inner office communication with, um, you know, those in the business and the producers and folks as kind of like managers, lawyers, or their teams. So I'm able to see what's actually happening here in conversation stuff that like, you know, they kept record for because, you know, legal matters, you have to keep record of all this stuff. So I'm looking at these contracts, how folks were paid by the episode or by the season and um, how literally a business plan of what Tan production is and what they're meant to do so making these out putting all together i was able to weave a story of what tandem is as a whole and then from there i was able to talk specifically okay here's tandem as a whole here's how people respond to the black shows but also if i want to talk about a particular black perspective i went to jet magazine as a source right i talked to tv i go tv guide and jet magazine i talk about both of them because tv guide is a general kind of universal tv source but Jet Magazine specifically is for Black audiences and created by Black writers. So for me talking about those in conversation, the deeper stories about what's happening on set happen in Jet Magazine. But the kind of overall this new this new show coming to NBC, you know, that that's what TV Guide is about. So for there, I'm able to kind of get a Black perspective that isn't archived by kind of going around ways and kind of developing like an idea of what Blackness looks like because of how folks are talking about it or in these roundabout ways and black owned sources also there's this really good guide um a television archive you can get online it's tons of videos from tv professionals from writers producers actors and again no one of the black actors i talk about none of them have were recorded on these archives but people talked about their interactions with them so again i was able to talk about how they responded to them in a roundabout way, talking about how they get their perspective on their own, on the black academy shows. So I found ways to talk directly to like these voices that weren't archived and created an archive around them. Also, a lot of these actors um did stuff outside of the sitcom. So I was able to go to like stand-up performances um and other, you know, uh, commentary they made in Jet magazine or Ebony magazine. To again, like find their voice, because a lot of things about Red Fox and how he feels about the show aren't really archived. Um, you know, he's a, a huge individual, but what you know about what he knows and says about Tandem doesn't isn't really present. So I was able to kind of create a narrative and find things based off of like comments he makes in kind of random areas of the media. And so, yeah, when creating a narrative like this, it was tough because there is no one stop shop for the black voice in these shows, but. There are ways to access it, and you have to find that voice through um, targeting specific things like the LA Sentinel, which is a black-owned mag- uh, newspaper in Los Angeles, Chicago Defender. You know, um, so these various black-owned newspapers, journals, um, you know, trade presses were very important to establishing kind of the black voice and how places where black artists actually felt comfortable talking about the reality of being on set in these like larger white institutions. Yeah. I mean, this is such important work in terms of, you know, not only decentering the person at the top of the hierarchy, yeah. right. But decentering the whiteness of the person who's at the top of that. For hierarchy. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that struck me, uh, you know, is, uh, in comedy studies, Norman Lear is kind of, you know, he's sacred, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's this champion of diversity, this champion of relevance, this champion of the First Amendment. Um, yeah. and, and it seems like really what you're you're offering us here is in some ways you're you're destabilizing this great man narrative that in part Lear has constructed around himself, right? I mean, yeah. I was thinking of, you know, um, 
Newcomb and Alley's The Producer's Medium or Newman yeah. Levine's uh, mm -hmm. Legitimating Television and criticizing this kind of showrunner as auteur narrative, right? Um, and yeah. in Lear is guilty of it perhaps more than anyone, right? Absolutely. Um, He's and, probably the first. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, mm -hmm. but but also offering us this this idea of like, you know, there perhaps there are limits or nuances to the the progress that he represented. And when we shift to to black talent, right, kind of seeing not only how he works, right, but but in some ways how he creates obstacles for the these these laborers and these creatives. I'm I'm, I'm curious, like you know, to what extent do you see this project as perhaps revisiting the Lear mythology that in some ways has gone unchallenged in a lot of comedy studies research? Yeah, and that, I think, too, what's important is that, like, yeah, even my acknowledgments, I acknowledge and, like, thank Lear and Yorkin because at the end of the day, that was – the reality was, you know, there were no Black individuals in, in the level of power that they had, right? So to have the level of power and to dedicate what, for whatever motive – we all know the motive – is largely financial, but to dedicate a show that focused on black culture, black communities with black actors in it is a thing that to be to be respected and to be like, you know, I'm I thank them for, you know, creating these or offering these spaces because it is important. But it's a challenging thing because yeah, when you hear their voices, and there's so many recordings of Norman Lear and Yorkin, right? Um, and hearing how they talk about stuff is like, oh wow, their perspective is very interesting. Um and really what I'm doing, yeah, I'm trying to make clear that, yeah, the producer's medium, I, I think I cite that a little bit too, just this idea of Feinstein made, you know, the independent producer, uh, the richest person on TV, you know, you see Mary Tyler Moore and like, no one probably did it as best as Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin for sure, because, you know, you can go off to different networks, you can kind of, and you you have an ownership of the show that the network doesn't have. And so that level of power that was so central, I think he had five shows that were top five or top 10 at least at one time you know so the level of power and control he had over hollywood was insane and you realize we say normal Lear, but people don't talk about bud yorkin you know he was his partner in this but normal Lear is the name that we all everyone knows right so that's nothing with the book i tried to kind of make clear both their voices but still Lear reigns because he talks the most he's the the scene as the visionary whereas yorkin was you know he wants to make pictures he's the director he's the one that was the technical um so what I was trying to do with this was really make it clear that, um, yes, he set the stage for these things to be for like these shows to be possible on networks because All in the Family gave him a green light to do whatever he wanted, right? Uh, and he he ran he owned TV like no one could argue that fact in those moments. So with that was okay, but he's not the person when you think about black shows that are different from All in the Family. His his like a lot of it, that with him was autobiographical. Like he talked about his own father being like that. And him coming with these more liberal sensibilities. But when it came to bringing that same stake and that same ideology to a Sanford and Son, for instance, he couldn't speak about it in the same ways, right? And he wasn't able to reflect that. So we had to hire folks who could. And, you know, that, that in itself, too, Sanford and Son was a, you know, a, a, um, a I guess, remake of Steptoe and Son, which is a British show. And they asked, uh, NBC actually wanted it to be an Italian family instead of a black family at one point as well. So you think about the ways that what had to change with the show it had to be placed in Watts. That's very strategic, you know, Watts uprisings, all that. It's kind of revisiting this idea of like where black people are located. Um, so really, because it would have been like Watts or Harlem. That, that were the, those were the places where black people were, were known to be in this moment. So what I'm doing is, yeah, I'm really taking a look at like, yes, he is the name that we all know from Tandem, but 
we think of creators and creative and creating the stories, what do we see as audience? Us as audiences, we see what was created through the the mechanisms of this three camera set um, and the comedy that's you know improv by Red Fox and you know um, John Amos and Esther Roll and Sherman Hemsley. We see the world that they created, and also we see the backlash that that they got. Right, Norman Lee didn't really get backlash for these shows. They did as performers. So, how in the same breath can we consider him as the creator if he doesn't get the backlash that they get? Because like, technically, if you created these shows, you should receive the same backlash. But however, these folks were had the kind of unasked for burden of representing the Black community and representing Black culture. So at a point where folks are looking at these shows to be a representation of what Blackness is. So that's a burden that's very tough, tough and heavy. And a lot of folks didn't like Red Fox for how he represented this kind of crotchety old Black man. And, you know, folks didn't like uh good times because of a lot of his socioeconomic looks and like Sherman Hemsley as a person who is like you know moving up and just kind of like more upscale like you know economic mobility folks didn't like how he engaged with white individuals so there's always something that was disliked and and also there's re always reasons that like you know they were fearful of their shows being canceled and for them that means their careers to Lear, that means, oh, another show canceled, I can make another one, right? So the stakes were much higher for these Black artists. So for me to consider them as part of the creative process, you know, some folks were obviously valued more than others. Um, I mentioned how Esther Roll was able to advocate for, for having a husband on the show because she, the show was made for her as a spinoff of Maud. Uh, they made it for her. So she had the power to say, I want a husband. And um, they couldn't deny it because she was a star. Right. But once John Amos had issues or had contention, they kicked him off, which they didn't want him there in the first place. So there was Red Fox was a star, walked off the show for five episodes. They thought they can do without him. And they realized we need him. So they brought him back fired the previous producer, gave him the money he wanted. So this idea of who has power, who has agency in these spaces also comes down to like star quality. And these shows don't exist without these stars. So these stars were able to finally advocate for themselves. So how can we not consider them creators of these shows as well? So yeah, it is a re revisiting this idea of the auteur theory. And the auteur isn't always necessarily the person in, behind the scenes constructing these images. It is those who are on, on camera but in the case of like a Red Fox or a Esther Roll, they are behind the scenes as well. And they're constructing how this is going to run. But they had to like make sure their shows were popular enough first. They had to make sure they had agency first. Because those who didn't, they were seen as throwaways. So yeah, um, all this is an, an, an advocacy of, you know, giving power back and giving, you know, strength back to those who are actually risking things in these shows mm -hmm. who are asked actually um the image that folks are all like kind of gathering around to represent an entire community um lear had a safety you know between him and the shows like you know he's that kind of guy the omniscient guy that we don't see but he's the one that's heralded as like this complete visionary but what about the visions of the folks who are doing this work and obviously getting paid much much less than lear what about their visions and how how were their visions implemented into these shows, and you know, and how are they making their imprint? And I think that's kind of why I chose the the cover of the book. It is the imprint of like you know, Luanda Page making um her own imprints into the Red Red Fox Hall of Hall, kind of Walk of Fame that he created, because there is no place where these black artists these black artists are imprinted into the TV history as like pioneers, but they vastly are. So I think that's so much important a part of this book. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a your comments on on Red Fox and um, Luando Page and and that kind of striking image on the cover, and yeah. also Esther Roll and John Amos. You know, I think there's there's one way we can think about this, right? Where it's like black creators are compelled to become entrepreneurial. But one yeah. of the things that kind of really resonated with me in reading your book was the way that black creatives are looking out for each other, right? Yeah. Like Esther Roll having John Amos's back and mm -hmm. Red Fox leveraging his star power for Lawanda Page, right? And, and, and the way yeah. that it's it's not just about how do I survive this industry? It's how we survive this industry. Can you talk for a little sure. bit about that kind of the, the community building that's taking place among black creatives that this history is recovering? Absolutely. And that was that was like the most proud part I was, I was able, able to write about was just like, what is it that these black actors did with their power? Because obviously not every black actor did that. I think I even put a quote from, you know, Jimmy Walker in the book that he wrote that he literally wrote in, in Ebony magazine. Um, it was on a particular um, editorial that's that was called Bad Times on the Good Time set where folks were kind of an argument about where the show was going, their argument production and then everyone, everyone heralds Esther Roll as the mother of the show. They call her mom, mom in real life. They realize that she's the matriarch of the show. John Amos knows that he's not the star at all, you know. But in this moment of like, obviously heteropatriarchy, there's oftentimes that you, you we see the the man as the head of the household. But that's Esther Roll's show through and through. First name on the credits. She's the backbone of the show. All of this, right? So Jimmy Walker had a comment saying, you know, I just, I, I do this show for, you know, uh, for the role. Um, no one was going to be like, no, looking back at what I said 25 years later and making any comments about, you know, what the show did for me, I'm just playing a role. But I even wrote, I, I, I put that full quote in the book and I even said, well, I said, oh, well, here I am 50 years later commenting on this, right? So yeah, what you say does matter. And I think some folks treat it like that. And, and you know, I think that's the, the case of Hollywood in general. It's like, you know, to some folks, it's just a job. And um, in this moment, to see it as just a job, you know, it's, it's hard to not be understanding of that because it's, it's hard to make money. Like I said, it's all a hustle. I consider him a hustler, too, because he also did stand up and all this stuff. I don't align with his politics and his views on community in this in this sense. But in the end of the day, he's a part of this mainstay show that acid the way it did. Don't like the way it turned the way it did. But that's that's kind of the legacy of the show. Um, but folks like. Red Fox and I was thankful enough to be able to interview um, Saul Turtletaw before he passed away. Um, you know, he he became the um, producer of the show. Him and uh, Bernie Ornstein, uh, like the third season, once kind of well after Red Fox kind of argued the show and came back, they fired the old producer, brought brought in him, and he was saying that he knew that if the show's going to work, he has to collaborate with Red Fox because he is the star of the show. And Red Fox would tell, you know, he called him Turtle. He said, Turtle, you know, um, look, we need some people in the background. Can I have some of my friends come on set? And he would tell his friends to come on set. And these are all people who are extremely well-known in the black comedy chitlin circuit, but national TV did, had no idea who they are. Um, like Scatman Crothers and other, other folks like that, you know, and, and Leroy and Skillet, all these folks who are from like kind of the triple X blue comedies, you know, a party record scene red fox brought them to the mainstream and he said hey come on set one day y'all you'll get 500 each and you know here you go it's funny something circulating right now it's not about another black person but community in general pat marita you know um you know known for karate kid fame he 
was on the show. Uh, he played a character. It's extremely like, you know, like you think about it, it's a lot of obviously tons of like racial and things that wouldn't happen now, but his character's name was Ashu, literally. And like, they would make jokes about each other, like saying the yellow plate, yellow fever and black plague. They would make these jokes on one another. But in real life, they were great friends, Red Fox and Pat Morita. And Red Fox gave Pat Morita $3,500 loan to, to get the loan for his house. And he told Pat Morita, don't ever give it back to me. I, you're going to be great, and I'm, I'm here to help you out. That's the person who he was, which is why he died in debt, because he really gave everything to bringing people back up with him. Things like that that, like, you know, you can't do if you don't have a successful show, you don't have agency. Yeah, and, and like, yeah, um, I mentioned, um, you mentioned LaWanda Page. Uh, she couldn't read scripts. There are, None of them could. They're coming from a circuit where they're doing stand-up, and mostly, left, most all of them left school in middle school. You know, so... All this improvisation, not being able to read scripts. And he said, like, if Lo if y'all kick Luanda off, then you kick me off too. Like he had that space to be able to do that. And Esther Roll on, on Good Times, yeah. Um, she wanted to, she said she wanted to have a show that was redeeming. And with all the things I talk about Moynihan Report, it's a greater idea that the black father of a complete family doesn't exist, right? So in general, I even put up like sketches in the book of the set design. The show was once going to be called the Esther Roll Show. Then it was going to be called the Black Show, which is, or no, sorry, they were going to be called the Black Family, like, which could have been so terrible if they did that, right? You think of all these ways that like Esther Roll was like, no. We need to have a show that shows what a black family could be. Yeah, we're amidst, amidst struggle and like economic, quote unquote, like turmoil, but we find the good times within that. But what you can't do is say that black men aren't at home uh, and don't have family. So she advocated for that and was able to get them on the show. Um, Isabel Sanford and the Jeffersons, um, they had to, they asked her, like, what do you think about Sherman Hemsley? He was 14 years her junior. Most people don't know that. Like, they they asked her how she they felt about him. She was like, "Oh, he's kind of he's okay guy, I guess." But like you know, he can make the show. He can he's funny. He's quick witted, and you know, uh, I think folks will respond to how him and I you know vibe off of one another. Um, so the power that these folks had to kind of engage with how the shows are going to move, who's hired, um, and really their perspective became important when they realized when I posed in the production realized that um, audiences started noticing like, hmm. The entire season of Sanford and Son, the first season, is all rewrites of Steptoe and Son, but just with these black characters. Folks wrote it in and said, uh, this doesn't really feel, you know, authentic or black enough or really. So Red Fox would say, let's hire some people who can write for us because black folks wouldn't say that. I think I have a section on there called, like, he literally quoted and said black folks wouldn't say that. He uses another word, but black folks wouldn't say that. And then he also says, you know, um, you brought folks in comedy. Red Fox, sorry, Red Fox brought, you know, um, um, Paul Mooney and Richard Pryor to be writers on the show, right? So it became this way of circulating true black comedy through who you're hiring and who and who's a part of these constructions of, of of telling these shows, and folks that Hollywood didn't really consider, you know, in their number at all. But yeah, the community effort and what the folks did to kind of bring each other up was the most the most beautiful part of writing this, like learning these stories and hearing it from this white producer who admired Red Fox for doing that because he realized that these are folks who would, would never caught a break on primetime television um, otherwise. He, he barely did. It, it was kind of a luck of the draw in the same way. So, um, and from there, you saw these folks start to premiere in other shows and other, you know, uh, other spaces in tandem as well. Um, but it was all because someone who had agency to do so cared enough to bring on authenticity and to bring folks up along with him.
Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of one of these like uh, fascinating intersections in this book, right? Like where mm-hmm. we see that um, these the, these black talents coming, uh, particularly Red Fox and the Wanda page coming from blue comedy, right? Like yeah. it's the yeah. kind of thing you cannot talk about in quote unquote respectable society. Absolutely. And yet at the same time, this burden to not only be, be funny, but to kind of represent one's communities in a way that's that's authentic and positive, right? Yeah. Like this kind of way that that Lear is framing what they're doing, um, and how the sitcom becomes a genre where, on the one hand, you know, you can you can amuse, but on the other hand, there is this kind of didactic function that they have to kind of negotiate between, right? Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. and, and and particularly, you know, you kind of offer us, uh, I believe, in the introduction, this idea of the way that like Bill Cosby and the Cosby show are going to approach this very differently, right. Mm -hmm. In the eighties. But you know, how they're dealing with it at this moment where on the one, you know, they're, they're, they're working within the, the studio, um, the tandem productions framework, but also within network television framework, but also kind of mainstreaming their work and being funny. I mean, it's just the, the kind of, negotiations necessary i mean it becomes a really Mm -hmm. useful concept in your your book um what we haven't talked about yet is is hustle economics right which is really the concept you use to kind of create an umbrella for all these kinds of negotiations and tensions Mm -hmm. um and and hustle as you as you mentioned is is often a term looked upon negatively certainly it's not a respectable term right yeah but on the other hand um it's it's a term that speaks to um you know don't knock the hustle or, or can't knock the hustle right absolutely um, yeah can, can can you talk about hustle as this concept that's that's useful for you but also a concept that's kind of implicitly classed and and racial oh yeah yeah absolutely i think folks now they term respect the way they term it now it's like the gig economy right where like people kind of do these random things and like it, it's the same thing but like yeah it's specifically raced because you know um it's a specific way that it's like black artists engage the economics and labor and like the methods are like largely the antithesis of their white counterparts. And well, they're largely not, but they're deemed different. So I think I mentioned too, um, the term actually came up and like my, um, advisor for my proposal, we had like a, a dissertation proposal class, um, Vivian Sobchak was my advisor. She helped me come up with the term. And so it was funny because, I'm reading kind of a George Lipschitz. I think it's like race, class, and this. He wanted, you know, one of his his, his article on that, and it talks about you know early early network TV. You know, um, Life of Luigi, Mama. I remember Mama. You know, um, uh, Honeymooners, Amos and Andy, all that, right? And he literally tracks where they live. It's like uh, Manhattan, Harlem, you know, San Francisco. Then it says like their um, occupations, their class statuses, but occupation that really struck me, right? Cause it says, Amos Nanny says cab driver slash hustler. And then for honeymooners, it just says like bus driver, right? For what, uh, you know, uh, Ralph Cramden was, right? So I was like, hmm, I watch honeymooners and all they do is get rich quick schemes is in the same way that they do in Amos and Andy. And Sanford and Son, but this term hustler isn't used for them, right? So I was like, oh, uh, hmm, let's see how they're casting what hustling looks like. And also, I, I, for me, that meant like they're doing the same thing, but it's very erased way of doing it because 
folks see, see hustlers and i'll say probably a lot of it came to this idea of like what we see in black petition as well like hustle is nuanced as like this dirty underhanded Ill illegal or often immoral way of gaining money or like you know um or having a, a living so for me, I was like, you know, hustle is, also, is like a way of life for folks and hustle doesn't have to have a negative connotation with it. You know, folks who are who work in academia as lecturers probably would lecture at different schools. They're hustling, you know, like because they're trying to make ends meet in an economic in an economy that's very difficult to, you know, and hustling largely just kind of means pulling together the resources and, and finding the best way to do something. That's, that's how I always see it. But it's particularly race in this matter, because it is in the same it is largely talked about as a hustle when it's black folks doing um, various things that are kind of seen outside the the norm of like a nine to five job, right? How are you gaining money and how, what are you doing with that money? So in the case of, you know, uh, these shows, especially Sanford and Good Times, they're about, you know, they have rent parties where it's like, we don't have the money for rent, which, is a, which also was a huge part of a black community, like where, uh, or, or, not even black, a socially and economically disadvantaged community. So like rent parties are not just a black thing, but we hear about them so much. And I think part of that is you think about Reaganomics, Reagan looking at this welfare queen identity of what black, that's as if just black folks are doing welfare. This casting of, you know, black folks being the ones who are in need, who are immoral, who are, you know, bending the law uh, for economic gain. But those are community efforts of like, all right, y'all, this person doesn't have rent, let's go to the house, give them all a quarter or a dollar, help them with their rent. These are community efforts of hustle and doing what you have to do to make ends meet, to really just live another day. And that's what these shows are about. Every kind of, almost every episode ends on a, or starts with a financial issue. They scheme their way to find a way to get out of it. And then, all right, next thing happens in the next episode because sitcoms are about returning to stasis and the, the show is about economic struggle and the funny ways to get out of it, right? So we see that in, in you know, Honeymooners too, but it's not deemed in a way that's like, you know, negative. We just laugh at it. But when it comes to Black communities and a lot of people, way people like read Black shows as like non-respectable as well, it's because of that, right? Um, like Black sitcoms are seen as like kind of this uh, not respectable space. They're seen as pure comedy, but there's so much more depth into it. So I think that's misreading it. But yeah, hustle economics are the race forms where you might have a rent party. You might have to scheme to the uh, person who's like um, about to serve you and take away your stuff. You can might have to fake an accident, fake an injury. You'll have to probably go to the pool hall and hustle your money because just to make ends meet. But like, you know, folks hustle in many ways and folks hustle in ways that, you know, may seem above board, but like nepotism is a hustle, right? If, if like folks are have actual like networks of individuals who can help them get jobs, that's a hustle because you have an inside track to economic, you know, uh, prosperity. And I didn't mention folks think of, you know, Jefferson's is different because it's about kind of upper mobility, but that's all a hustle too, because George Jefferson is, you know, trying to fit the image. He's trying to act like he's been there for years before. He's trying to, he's trying to push away his working class, poor, uh, poor beginnings. But then every episode he's humbled, reminded the fact that he's not from this same place. So he's hustling. his hustle is trying to fit the part. So really, hustle really is about trying to fit the part, trying to be a part of an image. But, you know, how do you make the your social economic condition work for you? And you see these ways that, you know, white sitcoms never talking about talk about 
rent parties. White accounts never talk about scheming landlords or scheming process servers, right? It's very much deemed as a black thing. When we look at these sitcoms. So I do hustle economics as a black specific way that these shows are deemed as often, you know, negative, but I'm turning that to feel like these shows are about survival, but it's about scratching and surviving. Literally you have to do, we have to do to raise your family. I think Red Fox mentions like, you know, having the, he said he what he had to do back in the day was, and this is like a true thing. When you realize he puts himself into these shows, they're very autobiographical. He says he had to sell apples on the street corner. He said he sometimes he would sell blood, right? And and like you know, you're like, dude, like you do what? But you have to realize that that is the stake of a lot of people now. They have to you know use government services of welfare, um, or they have to kind of you know they bet, they gamble, all these different things to try to kind of get around. Or they do they sell food stamps to get to be able to buy food, right? These economic conditions of an unaffordable space, um, people have to live. So these are all efforts of how to live, but it's casted as just black or negative when black folks are doing it. So I, I decided to put kind of turn the term hustle on its head. So to see what folks are doing on screen, but also the hustle is off screen as well. Um, John Amos creates a new contract to get paid better and to be able to have a writing stake on good times. That's the hustle because he realized that he can um, now popularity the show. He has some, some leeway to like to hustle, to get more money, but Fox leaves the show to get more money and for better working conditions. That's a hustle. You know, um, everyone has a form of what their hustle looks like on and off screen. So for me, it was about, you know, they're trying to keep their jobs and trying to get other people hired as well too. Those are all forms of the hustle. And I was I was intentionally making it clear that um, hustle in this book is about survival. And there's a negative, the connotation doesn't need to be negative. However, it's often casted and these shows are, are misread to be kind of just, um, you know, uh, as frivolous or these characters are read as like buffoonish because of how they hustle, because of how they do the trickery. But in a state and economy, in which the world puts, you know, people of color in it, you know, in, in difficult predicaments, what are they supposed to do? So that's why I wanted to make clear in this. Exactly. Right. I mean, that was one of the most valuable takeaways of your book for me was this notion of hustling gets racialized, it gets demonized, it gets, you know, um, judged. But in, rather than judging the hustler, we should be judging the context that yes. compels one to hustle. Oh, they have to right? hustle. Exactly. Yeah. And and the way that you mirror representations of hustling, scratching and surviving on screen mm -hmm. with what's actually happening behind the screen, right? I mean, I really yeah. love the section on Isabel Sanford where, you know, she's kinda like, you know, Carol Connor's throwing another shit fit. You know, mm -hmm. give me some more lines. I can do more. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like exactly. he won't do it, I will, right? Like, mm -hmm. come on now. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and 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 I never really thought about, you know, you, you would imagine an actor would really want the spin-off, but that kind of anxiety she feels as an actor who's not given the kinds of opportunities white yeah. actresses are given, when it's kind of like, well, if the spin-off doesn't take off, you know, then I'm I'm losing my meal ticket, right? Exactly. Um so, so I, a lot I really, of people it's about they're trying to keep their jobs too. Yeah. And like we we see them at, and, and I think we look at now, this is previous writer's strike where they're trying to figure out what the particulars. Um, I think people not in the field of like who aren't actors, actresses, we see these folks as all, oh, they're all rich, right? And I think that it's, we, it's clear that 
people are working. These are the jobs they're trying to survive, right? Not everyone is this A-list thing. Most aren't, right? They are, you know, a lot of them are very precariously um, employed and I, I obviously much worse than, right? So yeah, like I just want to keep, some folks like Isabel Sanford, she just want to keep a job. So for her, it's just like, look, oh, I'll do the lines. I'm cool with this. You know, um, I'll learn how to read a script, which is like LaWanda Page's hustle, negotiating, negotiating your identity of stand-up and on 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 national TV, that's a hustle. Red Fox went to uh, he taped on he taped on Thursdays Thursday night. He flew back to Vegas and did stand up. Came back Monday to, to do another run of the show. His hustle was staying in the mindset of black audiences through his stand up, and and also you know um, doing national TV as well on sitcom. So these hustles exist in different ways, and I think it's a matter of like he didn't need to do that. He was paid, you know fine but it was a matter of him really feeling like uh this job this tv show can go away anytime you know what i mean i need to keep my chops here and my main audience is always in my stand-up and same with like yeah isabel sanford she was just like look i need to do what i can this is a job for me um and having my own show everything on me that can get canceled in a week and then I'm done. Right. So what to do about that? So, so much of this stuff is about labor and like, I just want to have a job, you know, I do care about my job, but also like, um, I have to, I care about security as well. So what we see on screen, we, we, we deem like these huge contracts, but not everyone has that. Not everyone. I'll say other people I talk about, obviously red foxes was the most, you know, compensated, which, you know, show was ranked number two for so many years and obviously he earned all that as well but everyone else you know they made a living and they were popular to you know obviously mostly mainly the black mainstream so with that it's like how much can we actually risk how much can we say folks not having comments is also a form of a hustle like that kind of act of resistance, resistantly not saying anything, you know, Esther Rowe only used her voice when she felt it was necessary. Like when, when John got kicked off, didn't like it, wanted to leave as well. So she ended up leaving the fifth season and then came back the sixth season just to end the show off. But like strategically not using your voice is also a hustle and knowing we're like, all right, you know what, this, I'm going to keep my job right now. And, but what I can do is use my voice in the magazines. Like, um, you know, Akam calls it, you know, hidden transcripts, like, the places that you talk about the issues you're going through on the shows, but still you want to keep your job, you know, um, Diane, Diane Carroll did it on Julia as well. As well. So these ma- moments where you're like actively, you know what, this is best to be actively quiet right now as, as my form of my hustle. Cause I want to keep my job. But when the, when, it, when it's necessary or it's basically where I have to speak, I'm going to strategically speak too. So the hustles exist in so many different ways. And I wanted to make it clear that, you know, um, one, there's so many works that done that are just that analysis of textual analysis, like what we see on screen. But what's behind the scenes too? These folks are just trying to make a living, and they're hustling just as well. So we we can mirror those two conversations together. Yeah, and that, that segues to another thing I wanted to bring up, which is it, it strikes me that that this study is like very much part of a larger strain within critical media studies of scholars, particularly scholars invested in Black media culture. Yeah. Pushing pushing against positive negative binaries of representation as a way of studying and appreciating black media. You know, I'm thinking yeah. Herman Gray, I'm thinking of Alfred L. Martin Jr., Kristen Warner, Raquel yeah. Gates, who are trying to offer us strategies away from this kind of reductionist, yeah, arguably exhausted approach mm-hmm. to media sure. studies. Um so can you can you tell us a little bit more about this? Like how is how is this study kind of in that spirit of like 
positive negative representation ain't cutting it anymore for yeah. understanding black media culture. Absolutely. And I think it's funny because a lot of students too um, come to me with that. Like, oh, do you think this was like a good representation or was stereotype? I'm like, I, I'm, I'm like, what do you think? You know, I always put it back. I'm just like, I may like it, but that doesn't mean that I, I think, I think it's good or bad. And also like, um, I'm not a mad person of like, this is good or bad because it's all about who it resonates with. It may not resonate with me. I think Kirsten Warren was, was saying that like, you know, it's about resonance, you know, uh, do you relate to it? And even the word stereotype is like, you know, that exists because there are people who do perform in that way or people who are like that. So yeah, and it's a reductionist view of stuff because what it does is, is deeming that it's um, everyone sees it this way. And I think in media in general is about perception and about like, I see Sanford and Son, and good times this way because I relate to growing up poor working class. I don't see Cosby in the same way that because I don't relate to their lifestyle, right? But Cosby is the one that's heralded heralded because it's respectable. It's 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 a uh, you know obviously regards to the history of, of Bill Cosby, you know the show in and of itself is this respectable black family and and um and wealth and every all these things, right? I always correlated more with San Francisco and Good Times because I understand that more and resonates with me. So I can't say a lot of folks read San Francisco and Good Times as negative because it's about poor families. Why are poor families a negative image, right? So like those things have always complicated me because I don't see lack of wealth as a negative thing. I, I see it as a reality of living in a capitalist society, right? There are going to be people who aren't wealthy, um, people who aren't working class. The attachment of like the idea of an American dream um, is always going to be a part of like this kind of ethos of what America is. So for me, yeah, uh, people have often misread these shows. I've I've read a lot of critiques about San Francisco Good Times and like the critique of poverty that exists there, or or their their idea of. Um, these shows are bad because it shows black people in a light that's like, you know, negative because of, you know, um, their poverty. But why is poverty a negative thing? You know, like it's the reality that some people are poor. And I think this starts like as early as Amos and Andy, 1951, like the NAACP, you know, um, boycotted against this imagery um, because they felt it was like bringing black people back. And I think what's so important about that is that, uh, you know, the show was successful. It was watched. The network didn't cancel it. Blitz, uh, I think Blatt's Beer, the, their primary sponsor, didn't like all the heat around it. So they left, and that's why the show was canceled. But there is a documentary talking about Amos and Andy, the anatomy of controversy, where they're interviewing people on the street, black folks, saying what they thought of Amos and Andy. And some folks were like, actually, I loved it because – Black people were on TV for the first time. Um, it was funny. In that show, you have black lawyers, black doctors, all this stuff. And some of the characters, yeah, they do like stupid, kind of easy slapstick comedy. But some folks, black folks on TV was enough. Some folks valued the story that they told. And some folks hated it. So like, there is never a clear idea of a positive and negative. It's always complicated or it was always, um, you know, conflicted. And so I think that we look at any simply shows that have like a racial background or a background that's kind of a, of a disadvantaged identity. There is no boilerplate um, discussion about it. These are all fluid discussions and people all see stuff differently. So it's always reductive to see it as a positive or negative. It's what did you get out of it? What did you think about it and why? And so I have students who said, oh, isn't it negative that like they were poor? I was like, no, why is that negative? Like, why do you think it's negative, right? Is it negative because, you know, being poor is tough? Yes, it's tough, but that's not a negative image. It's a reality that, like, this show is putting forth. The problem is when TV's only casting one imagery 
as a whole and uh, to, to represent an entire community. You know, when the only show, period, is a show about Black poverty for years and years and years, that is an issue because it doesn't show the fluidity, the nuances of what a larger community may look like. But one show that represents a black black folks who are in poverty and finding happiness through that, that resonates with folks who are in poverty and try to find happiness through that. So yeah, um, I always tell my students early on because it's so easy to do that positive negative thing. Uh, it's not scholarly at all and anymore. And I think at one point in scholarship, it was the kind of easy way to, to publish things. But I think now you have to think about these nuances of like, what are people actually attracted to watching? You know, you mentioned Raquel Gates. She did that with like, you know, reality television has this deemed negativity, but it's popular for the masses for a reason. You know, it's about people, what people want to consume. It's about this idea of like living a lifestyle they don't know about, but also it's about interiority and, and they, it's okay to enjoy things as well. And I think that's another thing about media is that this is all a business and it's all about what people are going to enjoy. And at the end of the day, these shows are funny. You can't deny that they're funny. So yeah. start there, start there. And, you know, then we could talk about the nuances of the show and what they're doing and how, you know, you can watch these three different shows and you see three different types of blackness and you can enjoy all of it mm -hmm. in conversation with one another. Yeah. 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 It really takes us back to our feminist and cultural studies predecessors, right? Mm -hmm. Who remind us that, you know, um, reception is complicated. Yeah. You know, pleasure is negotiated, but we yeah. should keep pleasure front, you know, for, uh, at the forefront of our thinking, right? Is like, yeah. you know, that, 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 that Jacqueline Bobo, Stuart Hall, Janice Radway, Christine Gledhill, like reminding yeah. us that audiences are actively consuming. They're not just passive. And, and I think that, you know, the positive negative, especially when it comes from academics, risks, being paternalistic or patronizing towards yeah. audiences, right? And, and, and yeah. you know, I think that the fan letters you kind of recuperate kind of offer us insights, you know, and and, and this is kind of segueing into what I wanted to talk about last, which is um, an important thread of your, your book is um, kind of a black feminist recovery project of mm -hmm. like, you know, not only were these shows important, but we really see the the genius and the ingenuity and the persistence of of black women creatives in particular right Absolutely. um you you we've talked about isabel sanford we've talked about esther roll um readers should get the book so they can go and, and do the deep dive you do uh with you as they read it um i just want to talk a little bit a little bit about lawanda page because oh yeah i always love that yeah 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 <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, my, my own history with lawanda page is i remember as a teenager of the 90s watching don't be a menace to south central while yeah. drinking your juice in the hood right and there's that, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that crazy scene where she bursts into the bedroom and she's scantily clad and i just remember thinking to myself as a repressed catholic child i was like this poor <laughs> actress that she had to do this on screen oh no right she and i'm like that. and then you yeah. learn about lana page and you're like that was so her brand right Absolutely. yeah yeah and um you know in some ways the the wayan brothers and what what they're doing in wayans brothers and what they're doing in that film is is kind of a descendant of red fox and lawanda page so um you know talking about kind of recentering these 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 black women creatives can can you tell us a little bit about about page and um you know how Sanford and Son really owes a lot to her brilliance. Absolutely, I I, lo I love Luanda Page. Um, just the history of her so is is so great, and I talk about that more a little later when we talk about like what's next. But because yeah, the the image you mentioned about you know and, uh, don't be a menace was like that's really Luanda Page. What we see on Sanford's that's not Luanda Page. So like like on Esther 
is a performance, right? Uh, the Wanda Page that like got popularity through the circuit, through comedy, through she started in in you know party records, raunchy comedy, selling you know sexuality and claiming it as a black woman, you know, and like this kind of empowerment that's there. And her kind of idea, like repression of like as this, you know, holy roller Christian woman in Sanford and Son is that's the performance of her. And she's able to actually kind of utilize that. So I love her because well, LaWanda Page is, and you see, I even have like a, a LaWanda Page button. Like I like, I like, she's is, uh, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. Because LaWanda Page started as like, you know, she actually went to middle school with Red Fox. You know, they were both raised in St. Louis, but she started as this person who came to Hollywood. She just like performing. You know, she was a fire breather. She was a burlesque dancer. Some folks say stripper, but, you know, we don't, we, you know, we say she was a dancer, right? But she just loved this idea of performance and, you know, uh, being in the spotlight. So for her, you know, untrained from extremely poor background, you know, made to Hollywood was a waitress, you know, at, 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 a, um, at a bar in Hollywood. Brown Derby was a very popular ball at park. Used to be in Hollywood. Everyone used to go through there. One day they said, hey, you're kind of funny. You want to get on stage doing comedy? And then she started like, you know, just making jokes. And like, it was never her intent, but like she became a natural at it. Started doing stand-up performances with like, you know, folks like Leroy and Skillet and company through Laugh Factory, made her own kind of records. And then kind of being in Hollywood, got reintroduced to Red Fox. They relived their, you know, uh, their St. Louis upbringing. And then he said, hey, you know, at that point, my, that's the whole first season of the show. There was no consistent woman on, on Sanford and Son. There was no, like, it was about, you know, um, Lamont and Fred as Red Fox and Devon Wilson as these two father and son characters. So once you got to second season, you know, there was like a, a gap, like where there was no black feminine or the black woman wasn't present in the show so bringing the page in having her as this like one stand in the episode was like was something kind of historic because someone finally matched the level of comedy that red fox brought he finally had like a like a foe on a show they hate each other but in real life they're like so they're the best of friends but it's just like how they're able to vibe off one another so many of the show is them improving because as i as mentioned earlier she couldn't read lines. She's not from this space. Neither was Red Fox. They're not from, you know, Hollywood, not from theater. That's the difference from like shows later on, like Sherman Hemsley, Isabel Sanford, you know, that's they're from theater. So they, this is, this is what they really do. These folks are coming from, you know, backyard alleys and bars and like, you know, really like the gritty stuff you don't really talk about, the stuff that your, your parents watch when they listen to when the kids go to sleep. That's the type of comedy they come from. So now you're at, you're asking her to be on a national stage talking to a family audience and how can we do that still be black but still have our own comedic flair you know um so she had to learn how to read lines she had she was allowed to because of red fox go off script he told her be you don't be who's written here and he's able to do that um so i love her because what she did from that fame sanford and son folks liked her more than like red fox on the show and Fans wrote in on it. They say they said more Esther. They they even said like sometimes some folks said less red, more Esther. You know, she really was this force because um she was a person who could bat because like often the show was overpowered by Red Fox because he's that comedic force. But when she came in, she really naturally vibed with him in a way that's kind of contentious, but but it added to the comedy. So what she did after the fame of this show, she went on a tour called like the watch it sucker review and watch it sucker is like her tagline in the show so we say she was able to like merge and negotiate 
Holy Roller, Bible Thumping on Esther on, on Sanford and Son, and Lawanda, who was known as the Black Queen of Comedy or the Queen of Comedy to Black communities. She merged these two identities in stand-up, and she's able to use the fame of, of, of uh, on Esther aligned with Lawanda Page and her raunchy attitude, and she created like comedy shows and records about black religion with the sexual background too. So she like merged these different contexts that would never be seen together. And she negotiated um, what it means to be kind of this black holy Roller Christian and a black woman embracing her love, her sexuality and her body as well off scene. So I, I just love the fact that her and Red Fox were able to kind of keep their careers and keep kind of what made them who they are outside of the show. And Lawanda is kind of one of the black women who isn't talked about enough in the history of black comedy to do that. You know, I think we all talk about Moms Mabley, Whoopi Goldberg, all we, all we should because they're great, but there's so many other folks, the Wanda Page being one of them, who really kind of falls under the, the on the under the um radar as far as these black women. And I think in the 90s when they had the resurgence, because she's also in, you know, not just Don't Be a Menace, you know, she's in Friday for like five seconds at the start of the film. You know, she's in the film CB4. So like she has this resurgence in the 90s because 90s artists who grew up with her we're bringing her back into the fray as like a, as a, as acknowledgement of like you know those who brought them into comedy, so she's one of those figures, yeah. Who uh, I am working on something to even bigger to write about with her because there's so much more that hasn't even been touched. But this is just her role in Sanford and Son, and how she literally had to hustle and learn how to be both a stand-up and a you know uh, become a mainstay on television um, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to kind of the the larger thesis of the book, right, about, you know, um, you mentioned um, Moms Mabley is an interesting figure, right, because she's also yeah. kind of moving between these worlds of, of the Chitlin circuit, and, you know, she's on Ed Sullivan, right? Um, Absolutely, but, yeah. But, but LaWanda Page, uh, it, it seems like she doesn't kind of soften her image no, outside yeah, yeah. of Sanford and Son, right? She no, not at all. Kind of, she kind of <laughs> – she remains kind of um, active in – the black comedy circuit, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and this kind of question of mainstreaming and how they negotiate mainstreaming and how mainstreaming, of course, is is racialized white, I think is mm-hmm. is something that, you know, we have to think about not only as we we appreciate their labor, but also think about how do we write history um, yeah. across the entertainment industries, right? Yeah, that's a part of why like most folks don't know who she is outside of Sanford and Sunday because like she never really did mainstream things. Mm-hmm. You know, she stayed in the she stayed in the space and the films she got re- resurgence back in were black films. Right. right. So she yeah, the mainstream was never something that she like cared about. You know, she did the show. She didn't want to do the show, but like Red was like pressing her to do it because he saw something in her that she didn't see in herself. And like she always talks about how she's thankful to him for it. But she's she had mainstream things, but like they were unsuccessful. So for her, yeah, it um that's kind of why, like, we talk about, you know, things like, you know, um, Bambi Haggins, like, Laughing Mad talks largely about, like, you know, Moms Mabley, Whoopi Goldberg as these kind of, and, like, Pearl Bailey, to a sense, these comedic women and their mainstream crossover and what that meant. Luana Page, her mainstream crossover was, like, kind of short-lived. It was Sanford and Son, really. So, mm-hmm. like, it was kind of short-lived, obviously, in comparison to, like, a Whoopi Goldberg or a Moms Mabley. So, with that, people... Well, histories and archives don't archive it because, you know, it doesn't have this crossover mainstream red, white appeal, as you mentioned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I think we've given folks hopefully a a good sample, but there's so much more to get out of reading this. (laughs) And and if nothing else, um, 
uh, you know, another thing I got out of this too is just like going back and rewatching these shows, right, with a focus on performance and the authorship taking place in those performances. I mean, yeah. is, is is really um, a welcome contribution. Um, so, what are you currently working on? I mean, I I know it's kind of a bit uh, exhausting as an early <laughs> career scholar. To be yeah, like, yeah, first yeah. books out, now what's the next one? What's you know, next? I, I, yeah, I feel yeah. like your your tenure review committee. <laughs> um, but are, are you continuing on this path? You mentioned working a little bit more on the Wanda page. So yeah, yeah. So a few things I'm working on. You know, um, I've always had an interest in like you know, uh, I mentioned my dad's from, so I've always had an interest in like Caribbean media as well. So that's kind of more of a you know, articles, maybe develop a class first before I work on anything deeper on that, like book wise or whatever, but I definitely want to do some articles and a class around kind of a more African diasporic cinema or media by adding in, like, you know, there's talk about Nollywood and a lot of classes, but all that stuff, but like, I want to bring in the Caribbean because there's a huge tie in there. There's so much cultures there. You know, we think about, you know, um, you know, the uh, transatlantic slave trade where, where black folks were kind of pushed through the diaspora. So I want to bring more you know, focus on Caribbean made media there too. So I kind of started off with the discussion of um, the film, The Harder They Come, you know, 1972, um, the kind of the film that they say brought, you know, reggae to the world. So kind of starting there, looking at what other Caribbean countries are doing to represent their countries through film. So that's one kind of side thing I'm doing, not as actively as I want to at the moment, but that's still within the back of my mind. But more actively right now, I am working on a second uh, book proposal and project is about um, it kind of not kind of it definitely was stemmed from me feeling like I could say so much more about Luana Page, but I have to con constrict this to this Stanford and Son image because she did so much more outside of that or an after that, right, that hadn't been talked about. So um, I'm working on something new because in researching this book, I found a um, a Ebony Magazine article um honoring Mons Mabley. And in it, it says, who will be the next great female X-rated comedian, right? And it lists like six or seven women, right? But three of them are ones that people know because of their mainstream success. One of them is Lana Page. So it's my, all women are stand-up comedians. And it says like, who's gonna be the next, kind of the next Mons Mabley is what it says. Mm -hmm. And most of these folks aren't really known, um, but it says Lana Page, it says Shirley Hemphill, who played like Shirley in um and uh, what's happening, popular right, right, sitcom, yeah. and Marsha Warfield, who played you know um who played the bailiff on um Night Court, right? So these three women, so I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I know all these names, and I and also like, but most people know them for these for these shows. Most people don't know that they had stand up backgrounds and roots because it also it's not written mo mostly anywhere. It's not hard to find. So I was like, hmm, I can create a narrative around the stand-up roots of these of these women, how they negotiated crossing over, and what happened after their big crossover show. So like in the essence of like Shirley Hemphill, people don't know, she actually had her own solo show called One in a Million. It lasted one season, um, but the success of her, very much like Lawanda, uh, I'm sorry, um, like Isabel Sanford, they wanted her early on before what's happening, and they wanted her, Red Fox, sorry, normally you saw her at nightclub, comedy store, wanted her to have her own show. She didn't want that pressure just yet. So she said, okay, I don't want my own show yet, but put me on something if you're making something. And they made, uh, Turtle Top made, you know, what's happened. And then she got on the show. Her own show failed, but the failure wasn't in, wasn't, it was in the writing and it was in the construction of the show and the timing of it. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a story in and of itself. 
Luanda Page, after Sanford and Son, you know, she was promised a show by NBC to run herself, but never got it. She instead was on a show called Detective School, like a kind of ensemble cast show where she was a a comedy around like folks of different regions and races becoming detectives. You know, it was, but also she was very big on the roast circuit. She was very huge on the um, Dean Martin roast show. So yeah, like how right. she, yeah, right, right. yeah, how she was able to continue to establish herself after this mainstream success, and then how she had a resurgence in the '90s. So I talk about all of them. What happened after their their mainstream success and stand up and mainstream shows? And then how were they ever revitalized? So she came back in the 90s as the Shirley Hemphill through these Black product produced shows because Black artists who grew up with them brought them back to the mainstream. And, you know, Marsha Warfield, she had her own talk show after um, Night Court called the Marsha Warfield Show. You know, early 90s and, you know, kind of in the same breadth of like, obviously not an Oprah, but like a, a kind of a fun show, audience involved, catchphrases, all that. And then she kind of, went away a little bit and then we see her now in some mainstream stuff she's like on the tv show 911 now she plays a, a, a recurring character on that um she still to this day performs stand-up comedy so like what is like kind of these comedic afterlives but also placing these black women in a larger context of a black comedic tradition that i think that they're not included in so it's largely about I'm kind of thinking with the main title, but really it's about this kind of negotiated uh, crossover of Black women in comedy and how they have to negotiate different spaces of maybe TV, stand-up to um, to film and kind of um, where they privilege and let's include them in our histories of talking about women in comedy that isn't just Moms May Blue and Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. So I'm like pit- pitching a proposal around that and I'm looking forward to writing that, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that's such a, a rich topic. I mean, yeah. uh, it, it was interesting to see you talking about Paige coming back in the '90s because, like, one of the things we often see in historiographic practice, right, is people say things like, "Oh, they were forgotten," and it's like, "Forgotten by who? By who? Like, who exactly? Like, you forgot them, but yeah. like, you know, young black creators remembered and yeah, built that legacy and, and the citational mm-hmm. practice of casting them, right? So it's yeah, it raises interesting questions about you know who's doing the forgetting. When we talk about exactly forgotten, forgotten creatives, yeah, um, and a, a thing on the Wanda page too is just like um, she came back too in the nineties. I random deep uh, media dives. She was a spokesperson throughout the nineties for Church's Chicken, so she has commercials. Oh wow! And I'll okay. send you, I'll send you some links. They're they're <laughs> extremely odd, but she was a spokesperson that says like gotta love it, like for Church's Chicken, and like she was this person at least six. Um, six different commercials and that was her resurgence in the 90s along with these black films right. so like kind of uh people watching like probably like who is that but those who right. know know right so this idea of how do you negotiate triple x stand-up uh on esther lawanda the stand-up person and then she had a a whole album where she didn't cuss at all, where she found God again. And in the 90s, she came back on these shows. So like, how does she negotiate all these things to create who the Wanda Page is? So like, I'm so interested in that story of like, really how they negotiate what being in Hollywood as a black woman is. You have to be able to change who you are at the notice of what Hollywood wants in that moment. 
Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's so much to, to work with there. We're yeah, gonna yeah. Talk about. We're going yeah. to come back. You're going to talk about that <laughs> book when you finish. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that sounds really, really rich, man. Um, so thank you so much for your time today, Adrian. Um, thank the you. book is Scratching and Surviving Hustle Economics and the Black Sitcoms of Tandem Productions, available now from Rutgers University Press and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books and Media on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.